Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Good evening. It truly is a delight and a privilege to speak with you this evening on what is the final Sunday of our summer series. Over the past four weeks, uh, we have heard how the Psalms express a wide range of emotional postures towards God. Fear, pain, frustration, worship, praise, thanksgiving. Every doubt, every frustration, every disappointing venture that we can experience has been lived through the pages of the Psalms. You know, good poetry survives not when it's pretty or nice, but when it's sincere and honest. And the Psalms have lasted the test of time, not because they appeal to our emotions, but because they are confirmed in the intensities of people's real life experiences. In his book, Faith on Trial, Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones argues that a person cannot read the Psalms and honestly say that their experiences do not reflect the experiences described in them. He writes, these men were children of God with a great and rich spiritual experience. For this reason, it has been the practice of the church from the beginning for men and women to come to the book of Psalms for light, knowledge, and instruction. So from the lofty theological approach of so much of the rest of the Old Testament, we get to the book of Psalms, and it's as if they come down, pull up a chair, and speak to the specificity of our lives, our messy lives, our ordinary lives, with experience and honesty. And as we immerse ourselves in the book of Psalms, as we read them, as we digest them, as we have done over the past four weeks, they give us stability so that we can inhabit a true and biblical worldview that will transform who we are. This brings us to the final Psalm of our summer series, Psalm 73. Psalm 73 is one of the most famous lament Psalms. The Psalms of Lament make up about one third of the entire book of Psalms, and they tend to express deep pain and sorrow, whether it be for the personal struggles of an individual or the state of Israel as a nation and its ongoing disobedience to God. Psalm 73 is the former, and in it we find Asaph, the writer of the psalm, confronting the age-old question of why God seems to allow evil and suffering in the world and doesn't intervene to save good people from harm and injustice. Asaph was a prominent Levite during King David's reign and was a key worship leader for the nation of Israel. The Bible tells us in Chronicles 6 that Asaph ministered in the sanctuary and he was the person that led worship when David brought the ark into the tent. In Chronicles 2, King Hezekiah, following the siege of Judah by the Assyrians, told the Levites to sing the songs of David and Asaph those songs that would form a major part of the revival of the temple. Asaph was a profound and deeply spiritual man. He had prophesied and encouraged the nation of Israel through incredibly dark times, seen powerful signs and wonders. Someone 
you would assume, who would have an unshakable faith. But in Psalm 73, we meet him in a vulnerable place, admitting that his foot had almost slipped, causing him to lose his trust and his faith in his God. If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Psalm 73 as we read the words of Asaph. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my foot had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold, for I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous hearts comes iniquity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven and their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how would God know? Does the Most High know anything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care, they go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. If I'd spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery ground, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like a dream when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you. Yet I am always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My heart and my flesh may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. So Asaph, Israel's prominent worship leader, is looking at the world and he sees that the wicked thrive and prosper while good people suffer. And as he processes this, he deals with serious doubts about his faith. He has an emotional and intellectual crisis when he sees things that his faith cannot make sense of. What he knows and believes to be true about God is contradicted by his day-to-day reality. The best of the prophets raised this very issue throughout the Old Testament. Habakkuk asked, why do you make me look at injustice? Why do you tolerate wrong? David cried out in Psalm 74, how long will your enemy mock you? Jonah was exasperated by the violence of the Ninevites and he asked God to wipe them out. Jeremiah challenged the Lord saying, I would speak with you about your injustice. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? 
Many of us here this evening, myself included, have no doubt struggled with what we believe, why we believe what we believe, why are we right and they're wrong? Is Jesus real? And if he is, is he even God? And if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you will know like Asaph, not every question that we have is tied neatly into a Christian worldview. There are major gaps, things that are difficult to reconcile. Cancer, war, famine, injustice. But as I studied this psalm, I was challenged by how Asaph doesn't work through his doubts and questions by suppressing them. Rather, he gives full voice to his doubt before God. And now, as Tim Mackey beautifully puts it, people's words doubting God have become God's words for doubting people. You know, it says something about our God that he is comfortable enough to enshrine our protests, our critiques, our doubts into his permanent and living word so that when we come to him with our questions and doubts, we know he doesn't hide anything, but instead he has given us the tools in his word to deal with these questions. This evening, I'd like to look at three defining steps Asaph took on his journey to work through his doubt and frustrations and see how we can apply these to our walk with God. Firstly, Asaph identifies his doubt. Secondly, he reconciles his doubt. And finally, he looks beyond his doubt. Verse one, Asaph starts with his conclusion. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now this statement is either profound or naive depending on who's saying it. Naive perhaps if said by a new Christian who's still in the bubble of the revelation of their salvation and they haven't experienced the valleys that life can bring that can challenge such an infant faith. It might be easier for that person to say God is good. But for Asaph, this statement is profound. Walter Brueggemann suggests that Asaph's conclusion is a battle-tested, scarred affirmation. Asaph's statement is a core confession of the Bible. God is good to his people. Not just nice, good is always defined by action. So for Israel and for Asaph, good is defined by the known and tangible character of God who had rescued them from Egypt and saved them from slavery. By beginning with this story, it's as if Asaph is saying, now I'm gonna tell you a story. I'm going to tell you what happened to me. But the thing I want to leave you with is this, the goodness of God. So let's look at the problem. What had Asaph experienced that was so terrible? Well, he looks at the world and he sees the prosperity of the wicked and the oppression of the poor. In verse three, he describes what he sees. They have healthy, fit bodies. They wear pride as a necklace and clothe themselves in violence. They can't think of ways to benefit society, but they are ingenious in designing new ways to increase their own power and pleasure. Their words are cutting and they speak with malice. They are proudly irreligious and secular. They mock faith and the idea of a holy God who can judge. Doesn't this seem like an astonishingly up-to-date picture of our own world? 
Wouldn't it be nice if we could say that only good people prosper? Only the hard workers get ahead in life and only those who act in the best interest of others are in positions of authority. We know the world doesn't work like this. Many people who reject God are healthy, wealthy, and comfortable. In our society, pride, self-promotion, and manipulative behavior tend to pay off with economic and social success. Injustice is and has been normal for most people in most places in the world for most of history. But that's only one half of Asaph's problem. He goes on to contrast the experience of the wicked to his own experience. Verse 13 tells us, surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. Asaph had tried to be faithful. He had tried to be pure in heart. He had been to church every Sunday. He had tithed his 10%. He had attended every worship practice, been on the welcome committee, opened his home to small group. He had loved his neighbor. He had done everything to serve and be faithful to God. Yet the very next verse says, all day long I have been afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. Asaph doesn't make it clear whether he was physically sick or had an illness of some kind, but whatever it was, he makes it clear that despite his faithfulness to God, he was suffering. Life was not going well and he was miserable. And what's the result? We see it in verse two. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. In the Bible, to lose your foothold is a pretty serious thing. There are examples in the Old Testament where losing your foothold is an example and metaphor of spiritual destruction. And Asaph is in that place. And the implication is that life isn't what he expected. It wasn't paying off the living the way that God wanted him to. So he's saying, well, maybe I'll just walk away. Maybe I'll give up. It's just not worth it to me anymore. You see why this is so relevant to us. Asaph's experience is so common. We can do all the right things, but life can still be so hard. The person we love is sick. Our children don't wanna come to church. We're barely getting by financially. We work day and night with no reward, and we're tempted to give up, get cynical, because we're having disappointment after disappointment after disappointment, and those people who aren't trying so hard are living well. And we spiral into discontentment, frustration, and sometimes anger at God. What is the point? Why should I follow God if life is still going to be so difficult? So what's the solution? How do we, like Asaph, go from the darkness of our doubt and frustrations to being able to say with confidence that God is good? Firstly, Asaph identifies his doubt. He takes a step back and has an honest look at himself. And in doing so, he is able to identify the root cause of his complaint with God. Verse three, we see him as he begins to deconstruct his doubt. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. 
It's a credit to Asaph's honesty that he's willing to admit that his resentment and anger towards these so-called wicked people was due to outright envy. He didn't have righteous anger against the moral ills of society. He was just angry that he didn't have a piece of the prosperity. I wasn't angry at them, I wanted to be them. Twice in verse 13 he says, in vain I have kept my heart pure, in vain I have washed my hands in innocence. Asaph confesses that his efforts to live righteously was a self-interested one. I wasn't serving God for God's sake. I wasn't helping the poor for the poor's sake. I wasn't telling the truth for the truth's sake. I was doing it for my sake because I figured if I did those things, God would at least give me a good life, a pain-free, struggle-free life. But it wasn't working like that. And Asaph is wondering, what profit am I getting from all of this holiness? Living holy is pretty expensive. You've got to give up a lot of pleasurable things. So what's the point if I'm still going to suffer? It's quite a startling self-revelation. Are we willing to admit what Asaph admitted? Can we be as honest as he was and objectively examine ourselves to see if the source of our discontentment and our doubt is really our sinful nature, an unresolved issue within us rather than something happening to us. Jeremiah 17, nine says, the human heart is the most deceitful of all things and desperately wicked. Who really knows how bad it is? When we're sick, the symptoms of our illness tend to show up far before the root cause is exposed. So often, we think it's the symptoms that are causing us to feel sick. So we treat the symptoms rather than the root cause. But symptoms aren't always an accurate indicator of the root cause. We have to be patient. We have to take the time to correctly identify the real issues so that we can correctly administer the right antibiotics. It's the same with our relationship with God. Sometimes we need to be bold and pray like David and say, search me, O God. Know my heart, test me. Know my anxious thoughts, my doubts, my discontents, and see if there is any offensive way in me. Is it my disobedience, my attitude, my unforgiveness, the bitterness I choose to hold on to, stopping me from seeing what the real issues are? Am I blaming God for a problem I'm in part to blame for? It's important that we ask the right questions rather than jump to conclusions. You know, the enemy is gonna tell us that it's God's fault because he wants us misdirected, he wants us bitter, he wants us confused, and most importantly, he wants us isolated. But when we invite the Holy Spirit by his power to lead us and guide us so that we can ask the right questions, Jesus, our great physician, without shame or condemnation, can go straight to those sick places and bring healing. Secondly, Asaph begins to reconcile his doubt. The turning point of the psalm comes in verses 16 and 17, 
When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply until I entered the sanctuary of God. Then I understood their final destiny. The conflict and confusion that had almost overtaken Asaph finds its end in communion with God, in the sanctuary. The sanctuary of the Old Testament speaks of the presence of God. Isaiah 8 talks about the presence of God being a holy place. The sanctuary is what David longed for in Psalm 23 when he anticipated quiet waters where God would restore his soul. Jesus himself sought the sanctuary when he time and time again moved away from the crowds to spend time alone with his father. Asaph discovered that the sanctuary, the presence of God was the only place he would find peace from his frustrations and ultimately restoration. Being in God's presence allows us to move away from just thinking about God but to dealing with God. Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner says the turnaround began for Asaph when he turned to God, not as an object of speculation, but of worship. You know, fully surrendering ourselves in worship of who he is, is an act of our will. That especially in times of difficulty and uncertainty requires real faith. Sometimes it's not easy to worship when life is not going well. But it's our agreement that invites the strength and the reality of heaven into our circumstances, into our lives, and we become transformed and connected to the Father so that we can see how he sees, not how the world sees. Knowing he is good, knowing he is in control, and understanding just how powerful and awesome, yet perfectly intimate and knowable he is. Being in the presence of God draws our focus to heaven so that we can agree with what is true no matter how we feel or what we perceive with our emotions. There is a place for knowledge, for reading and for reasoning, but there has to come a moment of personal surrender. I believe our faith has sufficient objective truth so that the truth claims can be verified. But the point of real transformation comes when that third person knowledge, our knowledge about God, becomes a first person experience of who he is and what he has done for us. That gut feeling of I know that I know that I know. And that only comes when we spend time with him in his presence. But Asaph didn't just encounter God's love in the sanctuary, he experienced God's unmerited grace. In verses 22 and 24 he says, when my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was senseless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Asaph realizes he's been foolish. He's been senseless and cruel to God. He's been like a brute beast. But entering the sanctuary, meeting face to face with God, transformed Asaph, not his circumstances. 
God was able to correct Asaph's vision to reorder his priorities so that when he came to his senses, he saw that God had never let him go and was passionately committed to him in spite of how he'd lived. This evening, we can know that God is graciously and unconditionally committed to us with more certainty than Asaph had. How? On the cross, Jesus had the exact opposite experience that Asaph had. Asaph hadn't been faithful. He had questioned the character and the goodness of God, but he found that God had not forsaken him. But Jesus, who had lived the perfect life, on the cross, found that God had forsaken him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For God made the only one who did not know sin to become sin for us, so that we who did not know righteousness might become the righteousness of God through our union with him. Jesus chose to leave the presence of his Father to come to earth to pay the debt that we all know that we owed for the wrongs that we had done by dying on the cross. And because God wouldn't take two payments for the same debt, because Jesus paid the price completely and fully, that means that no matter what we've done, the choices that we've made, the mistakes that we've made and will continue to make, if we reach out to the Father, we will find that he has us by the hand and he will never leave us and he will never forsake us. Timothy Keller puts this so profoundly. We have the hand because Jesus lost the hand. We will never be forsaken because Jesus was forsaken. My prayer is that we're becoming a people who passionately pursue the presence of God so that his presence becomes more than just an experience at a certain place, at a certain time of the week, but that his presence is constantly shaping and molding us into the image of his son so that we are constantly connected and present with our father so that we go from that place into our homes, into our marriages, into our workplaces, into our communities with truth, with purpose, with clarity, with the grace and love of God and most importantly, the gospel of Jesus. How much more could God use us if we made his presence our priority? But that's not all. Finally, Asaph looks beyond his doubt and sees his hope. Verse 26 tells us, you guide me with your counsel and afterward you will take me into glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? The earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. The death of Jesus tells us that God is graciously and unconditionally committed to us. But the resurrection of Jesus tells us that we have a future hope, that one day Jesus will return, that Satan and the kingdoms of darkness will be crushed forever, that all of creation will be redeemed 
and that God will perfectly establish his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. Let it be. Why do we need to understand this to deal with the discontents and doubts of our heart? If we know that the hope and promise that is to come is the deep fulfillment of God's perfect perfect purpose here on earth, that he will restore everything to the way he intended, then and only then can we begin to deal with the incompleteness of this world, the unanswered questions, the injustices. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, going into the sanctuary means you begin to see things as a whole and you are reminded of things you have forgotten and ignored. The sanctuary reorients us so that we are able to see the end from the beginning and it repeatedly invites us to see God's bigger picture. God does not always do what we want when we want or how we want him to do it. But he is always ready to do exceedingly, abundantly, above and beyond anything we could ever ask or think. Isaiah 55, verse eight and nine says, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts, says the Lord, and my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways. Our sin-dimmed eyes won't always see. Our finite minds won't always comprehend. Our fickle hearts won't always trust. And our timid souls won't always have faith. But God wanted Asaph to realize that this same God who had brought such pattern and beauty into a world he had fashioned out of nothing could also bring a pattern and a beauty to Asaph's brokenness. If our deepest hopes are rooted in God, if he is our ultimate treasure, he is our ultimate affirmation, our ultimate purpose, then our hope is not in the things of this world but it's in the absolute confidence that God will do what he has said he will do in his way, in his timing, for his glory, and always for our good. Second Corinthians sums it up. So no wonder we don't give up, for even though our outer person gradually wears out, our inner being is being renewed every single day. We view our slight, short-lived troubles in the light of eternity. We see our difficulties as the substance that produces for us an eternal, weighty glory, far beyond all comparison, because we don't focus our attention on what is seen, but what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, but the unseen realm is eternal. J.R.R. Tolkien envied his friend C.S. Lewis. Tolkien and Lewis in 1937 got together and said, let's write fiction books of the type that we want to see written. So over the next 20 years, Lewis wrote the Space Trilogy, the Narnia Chronicles, the Screwtape Letters, and he just churned them out one after the other, while Tolkien continually wrote one book. He thought he would never get it done and he really envied Lewis because Tolkien had a great aspiration of a story that he wanted to tell and he desperately wanted to tell it. 
and he would write each chapter over and over again. In the early 1940s, he got so frustrated with his own artistic incompetence that he stopped writing The Lord of the Rings completely. One night, Tolkien had a dream, and when he woke up, he wrote the dream into a story, and after that, he was okay. The story is called Leaf by Niggle, and it's a story about an artist named Niggle. The town where Niggle lived commissioned Niggle to paint a mural on the side of their town hall. He worked on the mural for weeks and months and years, and Niggle had great plans to paint a tree. The town fathers came to him. We have paid you all this money, but all you have done so far, Niggle, is paint one leaf. Niggle tried, but after all, after many years, all he could do was one leaf. He tried to keep going, but all he could achieve was that leaf, and then he died. Then he was on the train to heaven, and as he was getting close, he saw something up on a hill. He said, stop the train, and he ran to the top of that hill, and this is what we read. Before him stood the tree. His tree, finished. If you could say that of a tree, that it was alive, its leaves opening, its branches growing and bending in the wind, that Niggle had so often felt or guessed and had so often failed to catch. He gazed at the tree and slowly he lifted his arms and opened them wide. It's a gift, he said. He went on looking at the tree. All the leaves he had ever labored at were there as he had imagined them, rather than as he had made them. And there were others that had only budded in his mind, and many that had might have budded, if only he had had time. Can I invite the worship team back up? Suddenly, Tolkien realized that there was a real tree, and someday, everyone was going to see it. There's a story I'm trying to tell, but someday I will. Tolkien was a Christian and he believed in the resurrection and he realized that in the future, the deepest desires of his heart, the questions, the frustrations, the discontents that he felt then would all be fulfilled and satisfied in the fullness and grace of God. And then and only then was he able to deal with the incompleteness of this world. We have to go up and out. Like Asaph, we have to take our doubts up into the presence and the sanctuary of our loving and perfect Father, trusting him that even if we don't have all the answers this side of eternity, that we can know with assurance that he will never leave us and he will never forsake us and what he has promised to do, he will do. Then we must take our doubts and discontents out to eternity, where in the powerful words of Helen Lemmel, the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.